The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. Today's guest's company started with the realisation that umbrellas really sucked. And it's grown into a business that's turned the industry upside down, selling brollies for five to ten times more than the market, growing to be in countries all around the world, and now having sold over a million units of their signature styles. The company, of course, is Blunt, who created windproof, strong, beautifully designed umbrellas that won't take your eye out or be heading straight to landfill after seeing some wind. Through fashion collabs, a lot of market building, and clever design, they've created their own section of the market. To talk taking an idea to reality, success that's taken more than 15 years, how to produce quality when you're small, being global from the get-go, customization, and loving bad weather, creator and inventor Greg Brebner joins us now. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Simon. Hey, so tell us back to, take us back more than 15 years to that kind of origin story of, of seeing the broken umbrellas in the bins on the street and thinking there's got to be a better way. Yeah, well, um, it was London, actually, 1999 when I had this inspiration. And um, I guess before that, just, just growing up, the idea of inventing a product for me was like a really top of mind. I always had this, um, I guess, this love of the idea of um, creating something from nothing and taking it out to the world and the masses. So I always had my eye out for that idea. And um, it took a long time to come around. And it wasn't until I got into this, I guess, this alien sort of place on the other side of the world that I um, had this different uh, perspective. And um, the umbrellas, just being a bit taller, wandering the streets of London and mainly the spikes, they're quite dangerous around the edges. It just felt like every umbrella in London spike was at my eye level. So walking down the street on a busy rainy day, weaving in and out, I just thought this is crazy. As a consumer experience, people were fighting with these products, they were breaking. Everything about them seemed wrong. So I, um, I actually bought a few umbrellas and took them back to the flat where I was living and just looked at them sort of as an object for the first time in my life. And um, realised that they were their shit, right? And um, they really hadn't changed for like nearly a century. And it just felt like they'd been lost in time. So, yeah, I guess there was a few, um, I guess, insights that sort of drove me to it as a project. And um, the first thing was there's lots of room for improvement. The customer experience was just crap. And um, the big thing for me was just the, um, the fact that it was a fashion item that had just lost the design behind it. And I felt that market value could really be there and be bought back like it was 100 years ago, umbrellas were an item of great prestige, and they just totally lost that mojo. So I just felt with the right design product that could be bought back. 
And I guess without that insight, I wouldn't have spent so much time and effort trying to fix it, right? (laughs) What what were you doing before that? Because, I mean, wanting to invent something and being able to invent something are two pretty different things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up, like, with a dad with a big workshop, so I was always quite hands-on. And I sort of drifted through school. I wasn't really um, focused as a student. And I somehow managed to get an engineering degree. And it wasn't until I got my first job at Fisher & Paykel that I realized I didn't want to work for someone else for the rest of my life, but quite inspired by the whole product development process. So, um, so yeah, just in my spare time, just started trying to make things and, and just being inspired by what was around me to um, to create that that amazing thing. And then I heard of James Dyson and his vacuum cleaner, right? And I was like, what's my vacuum cleaner? So, yeah, I, I kind of had that thought in my mind for quite some time. Ah, that's so cool you were looking yeah. out at it. And I love the way that you said, you know, you had that perspective change from being in that alien environment yeah. and, and looking at the world in Massive. a different way. Yeah. Because it's so interesting where creativity comes from, and sometimes it's just from looking at the world a different way. That's eh? right. Yeah, and um, it never would have happened being in New Zealand. Like umbrellas here are just a non-event. That's why I think people are so shocked and talk about it so much because it's just an item they never gave a second thought to. And um, yeah, to go there and to see them everywhere, and people really rely on them, right? They're all walking on feet, on their feet, um, yeah. commuting on feet. And um, yeah, you don't do that here in New Zealand. You're in a car. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's so different. And a rainy day really is a battle. Like, you yeah, know, insane. Everyone's in their little circle jostling for position. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you don't. And most cities around the world are like that. Yeah. Right? In New Zealand, we don't get it. So, um, with, with these edged weapons. And so what was the, what was the process to go from, from seeing that, that area for improvement and actually building a better umbrella? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was always quite intrigued with what actually makes a success of people before I even did this. And... Um, I just, I guess I had a little recipe of success that I knew I needed to get right before I did anything. So I had tried so many other things that hadn't gone anywhere. And um, one of those things was the vision, like setting a vision for what success looks like for this product. So I spent a long time in London just walking around, just sort of visualising what this this product could look like in its, when it's done. And um, and the other side of it was just the um, the ability to focus on that as a project to complete it, because I really felt like I, I needed the stickability, otherwise I'd never get it done. So I um yeah I just told everyone I knew I was reinventing the umbrella so just just announce it to the world right <laughs> so um yeah a lot of time spent on that mentally preparing myself to make sure I damn well did it so I think without that I wouldn't have stuck with it for so long. That's an interesting approach because some people when they get an idea that they want they squirrel it away and don't share it with anyone and yeah and and are real secretive about it but you took the kind of telling everyone you're quitting smoking approach so yeah you, yeah well, kind of social pressured into it yeah it was just yeah it was basically mental pressure on myself to complete it. But yeah, there's no secret to give away, right? I hadn't done a damn thing. It was just all about announcing to the world and making, yeah, it's just saving face, really, for me to actually keep keep on doing it. Yeah, and, and that, that was that's what got it going. Yeah, yeah well, that's that's so interesting that that's kind of the the superstructure to make it work. And then how do you actually go about uh, redesigning something that there's so many out there? Yeah, so it's basic beginnings, right? Super basic beginnings. And um, it was more about the attitude of it being this massive puzzle that had an answer, so accepting the fact that there was an answer and accepting the fact that you were the one to find it. So you put yourself on that journey. So I got into the cycle of, of basically trying to come up with a radical idea for this new umbrella. And um, it was like a cycle of failure. Right? So I'd spend like a couple of months trying to develop it on the floor of my flat in London and um, spend you know, two months, get nowhere, throw it in the corner and disgust, walk away, and then come back to it. And then I couldn't leave it alone. So the more I got into it, the more... I um, just got more attached to the idea of doing it. And it was just like this life mission. <laughs> so, But it took forever. Like I was 18 months in and had nothing to show for it, but still as committed as ever. So it wasn't until then that I actually sort of looked at what I was trying to do and um, realised I was just trying too hard, trying to be really radical about my approach. And that's when I um, sort of changed tact and really respected the um, traditional umbrella, worked out what was right with that, and then um, and 
kept those bits and then worked on the bits that weren't right. Oh, right. So yeah. in the first instance, did you come at it and go like, wait, maybe it could be a fan or maybe it could be a radial thing? Or yeah. What? I, just wanted yeah, yeah. To, I just wanted to forget everything about what existed, thinking that was the best approach. And um, it probably, la- it probably could, taught could, myself a lot of things. You could have a cone that you just yeah. put over your heart. But yeah. the reality is it would have been a disaster, right? Because yeah. they're, they're fashion items, so they need to be familiar to people. Mm. And I've heard of this rule recently of um, products that are successful are 80% familiar to people and 20% innovative. So you've got to get that balance and know which bits to work on. Mm. So it wasn't until I had that, that mindset that I actually got anywhere. But that was a few years in. <laughs> so, <laughs> a long time, right? It was really drawn out. And when did you know it was working? What was, what was your breakthrough? Um, I think when fundamentally I knew I had some good engineering principles to it because really an umbrella is just two materials working together. There's the canopy, which is the fabric, and then there's the frame beneath it, which supports it. And on analysing the traditional umbrella, it does a really bad job of of using the fabric. So um, if fabric's pulled tight, it's going to give you a way better, um, I guess, structure. And um, you're using it more like an engineering material then. So I came up with a geometry for making that, that fabric super tight all over. And when I had that, I thought, yeah, I'm onto something. Because that means it's going to be more like a wing in the wind as opposed to a floppy sail, more structure. And, um, and I can make a different shape out of it as well. So when I had that, I knew that I had some momentum. But yeah, it wasn't anywhere near being a product. But it just had that, that seed of, of the concept, which was yeah. here to start. And the strength. So did that come as kind of a byproduct of the, the cool structure? Or was that were you actually setting out to go like, there's a couple of fundamental flaws in an umbrella. Like, it doesn't work in the one time you meant to use it is probably the biggest problem if it's windy and wet. Yeah, oh, there's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle that had to come together at once, and I'm not sure the order that they fell into place, but I always wanted to have no points at the edge because I thought that was to be distinctive and the fact that it needed to be safer and they always broke at that point too. So that was really, really important to me. But at the same time, just the structure of it, making it work better. So all these things had to come together at the same time. So that, that's when I knew I had a solution when... I had like five or six different things I needed to get right that could be solved with that one solution and design. I think that's what's made it so special. And the fact that it still works the same as a normal umbrella, you don't have to educate anyone how to use it, and it still largely looks like a classic umbrella, but it's got that twist to it, so that balance. And after, what was it, like about five years of design and development, you, you came back to New Zealand and started to make kind of prototypes? What was the journey back yes, here? Yes, no, it was about two years and I came back to New Zealand because my father had a plastics business, so it was mm. perfect for, for development. And I um, worked with him and then part-time on this umbrella. So um, yeah, it was about four years and I think I had a working prototype and got a patent underway. And um, yeah, it, it worked, but here again, yeah, not built that well. So yeah. And what are the steps to go from, so I mean, even getting to the point where you've got a patent and a prototype is pretty amazing. But then... What, what do you have to do as kind of the inventor of an idea like that to take an idea and make it into a real product, to commercialise it, to to put it into something that people can buy? Yeah, well, that, that's a huge question because I, I spent all those years just really focusing on the product. Thinking if I had the best product out there, then everything else would sort of fall into place. So I really felt like I'd done most of the job at that point in time. <laughs> but, that, yeah, that wasn't to be. But, um, yeah, so I had my prototype. I knew I had to get it made. That was the big thing. And I knew the industry was in China. So I um, found out about a friend of a friend, this guy, David Haythenthwaite, and um, his father's Peter Haythenthwaite, who's quite famous in New Zealand design circles. So I got hold of him and just told him what I'd done, and he'd been in China with the umbrella industry for a few years and came back with quite a doom and gloom message saying, just stay the hell away. He said, the, ma- the industry's run like the mafia, almost. <laughs> yeah, Big umbrella's going to yeah, get you. Yeah, there's like 10 big players, and if you have a design idea, you go to them, and they'll just eat you for breakfast, and you'll see nothing for it. So, um, so I, that was about 2004. I had that knowledge and I had a patent and all this money going out. And I was like, what the hell do I do? So, yeah, pretty dark days and really no way forward that I knew of. 
And that's when I, um, I met a man called Scott Kington, and that was just through working on another project. And um, so to share that load of, of where we were going, and Scott had complementary skill set to mine. So we, um, we started a, a business at that point and then thought, well, what the hell do we do? And we thought, we've got to make these things even if we don't use China. So we make, tried to make them in New Zealand, and that was really just to prove the market. And um, that was a long, drawn-out process in itself. So getting components out of China and getting components made in New Zealand and putting them together at night on our kitchen tables. And then, um, and then went out to a couple of shops in Auckland and put them in there and put a price tag of $99, which was you know, quite extreme back then for an umbrella, um, given that no one knew anything about what we were. And um, lo and behold, they started to sell. And that, that, was, that was massive for us because it actually proved the fact that people were willing to part with that amount of money for a better designed umbrella. Yeah. So, so that, just that alone, even though it was a failed thing in terms of the products were crap, like they all got returned and we had to stop. <laughs> but just the fact that we, we had yeah. actually found out that people would pay that money it really was like, yeah, we, we can do this properly now. And, and at this stage, you're well, about five years in and you've um, been spending a lot of time and money on this idea and the umbrellas... 10 times more than the umbrellas people can pick up that they're used to buying. Were people telling you you were a little bit cracked to be pursuing this by now? Were people edging away at dinner parties? Or what was your experience at this moment keeping the faith? It's hilarious because it's really people are really polarised on these journeys. Like My family really struggled with it because they did feel like I was sort of wasting my life a bit and it was a bit infatuated. And the whole process for me was really internal because I designed inside my head. So you get really so you go a bit nutty almost. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of people were like, especially close to me, you were like, what the hell are you doing? And then other people are like, get on you, go for it. You know, yeah. So you don't really get any people in the middle. It's sort of either side. So yeah, definitely a lot of lot of different reactions. Cool. And, and so what is the next step to go from getting that initial market validation that people would pay, you know, top dollar for a well-designed cool umbrella, <laughs> so long as it actually uh, uh, worked, to then uh, getting the production standards up and going into the belly of the beast into the mafia of China? Yeah, so um, so the the thing about validating was really about getting money. Like obviously, you're on the bones of your ass as a startup, so getting money is a massive thing, but you've got to do it the right way. So really that enabled us to start that process of getting investment and that, that obviously enabled us to do lots of things. So um, so yeah, that process worked out really well for us. We got some really good investors on board who are still with us today. And that was 2007, so it's been a long time. So they've been very patient and very supportive. But um, to do that, then we realised, yeah, we've got to get them made properly because we had a good design, but the product build was crap. So we needed people who knew what they were doing in terms of manufacture. And that was going back to China. Yeah. And to hear more about that journey, we'll be back in two minutes. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. Check it out through the spin-off. Hi, I'm Russell Brown, and I'll make a podcast for the spin-off called Actually Interesting. Those are also the initials of its topic, Artificial Intelligence, which is very interesting. You can find us on your favourite podcast providers or on thespinoff.co.nz. So yeah, tell me about those investors, that, that investment, actually, because that's really interesting, isn't it? Having to have the investors with the long-term view, because they'd have to really believe in the disruptive potential of the product in the market uh, and and how cool it was. That's exactly right, yeah. So um, initially we were thinking all sorts of things about investment, like should we get 20 people in and um, they all have small investments each so that no one's putting too much money out? And I think in hindsight that would have been a disaster because you've got all those people who are you got to keep happy. So, um, yeah, what, what we've learned is the um, having the single-minded vision is really, really important with everyone in the company. So making sure that any investor that comes on board has exactly the same sort of ambitions as you do. 
And um, I guess we were lucky with our investors too that for them it wasn't a massive amount of money to put into it. So they weren't mortgaging their houses, so there wasn't that stress. And also an understanding money will always run out. That first, So it's just what happens after that. So to have that understanding when you get an investor on board is like, it's really important. And we a lot of that luck, we, we fell into that luck. But um, to plan it would be even better. <laughs> yeah. And so you use that first, uh, you, you know, kind of good-sized external seed investment to actually set up shop in China. Yeah. So um, so we needed a contract manufacturer. Went back to our friend David, who was still in China. And I guess in the meantime, his luck up there had changed a little bit. And maybe the industry had a bit too. So he in- introduced us to a, a factory that he thought would be good for us. And they were sort of big enough, I guess, to have the volume once we got up and running, but small enough to care and for us to be actually deal with the owner of the factory. And um, that was really important because if you could get lost in middle management of an umbrella factory in China and you'll never get anything done. Yeah, and and yeah. I guess when you're dealing in a scale industry and you turn up and you're like, oh, we're from New Zealand and we've got this umbrella that's going to cost 10 times as much, but it's cool. You could just get, um, you know, very, very low, uh, you know, operators who don't really care or buy into it. Yeah, yeah, well, and we had that, even though we were with the right factory, which we're still with today, um, it took two years to get manufacturing out of them because they just didn't understand it, right? We were trying to come up, turn up, tell them how to, make an umbrella when they've been doing it for 40 years, right? <laughs> and they're, 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 um, I guess their goal was to make it cheaper and faster. And we said, make this. It takes five times as long and it's going to cost you all this money. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? You guys are crazy. <laughs> crazy guys from New Zealand coming up here. So, um, yeah, it took a long time to get moving. And it wasn't until we actually um, threw a bit of money at it to actually put that first production order. And so they actually could make some money out of it, not just a, just a promise and a dream of future orders, um, that something actually happened. Yeah, so late 2009, we got our first production out. Wow. So that's 10 years after the first inspiration. So yeah, really drawn out. Yeah, 10 years after the first inspiration yeah. and now we're, we're 10 years on again. What, what were the first uh, kind of forays into building it as a consumer product? Uh, how do you go about launching once you've put the big money behind a big production order? How do you actually get it out into the world? So, so we, we had an idea to start with that maybe we license it to bigger brands. So um, Scott went on a trip around um, Europe visiting all the main distributors. So there's the traditional market. And I um, sat with them and showed them. And they loved the product, but they all were like, you just don't fit in with our industry. Like these guys had these warehouses full of millions of umbrellas and they just had to pump them out. So they needed umbrellas to fail, basically. Mm. So that was the way that it worked. So for us to come along with this umbrella again, um, disrupting <laughs> the market with an umbrella that would last, it made no sense to them. So really... From that point when you we had to do our own brand and our own distribution <laughs> network, which you know, massive undertaking. Like one guy told us that it'd cost twenty million euro to set up your own brand and get moving. So lucky we didn't listen to him. Yeah. I guess they were running a kind of uh recurring revenue model of planned obsolescence. Hey, they're like, Well the you'll buy yeah. you'll buy four umbrellas off us every year and <laughs> when it's windy and you use it it breaks. Yeah. Well they just didn't question it. I guess the that market was the industry's so entrenched in that behaviour. They, um, to break out of it for them was such a, a big thing that they weren't even willing to take the risk. And so what were the places you landed in, like kind of specialty design stores or specialty? That, that was where I first kind of started uh, seeing the brand was yep. in, you, you know, stores where it would be sitting alongside like a Philippe Stark uh, juicer or something, you know, as these kind of like cool design things yep. rather than maybe um, a wet weather utility. Absolutely, yeah. So, so to start with, we... Um, we went to independent stores because really they're the only ones that would take the chance with you and they're always looking for new stuff. So that was a great place to start and this is the New Zealand market. And then I think about three years in we got into Smith & Coe's and that's when we really felt the momentum happening. So these big department stores will get through a lot of product with you. And when you get them on board and they're in love with it as much as you are, it gets quite powerful. So I think that's when New Zealand really started to crack on. 
And in the meantime, like we always knew we were going to be a global offering to make it stack up. So we needed distributors around the world to help us. And the only really way to do that was to make a lot of noise so that they'd actually come to us because if you don't know, they don't exist, right? You can't go out and find them. So that was PR was really good for us. So getting stories in, in global magazines like Wired Magazine and places like that, that, that was really good for us because everyone seemed to be quite attracted to this innovation story about a product, an everyday product that had been innovated. So, um, so we're quite lucky in that, that respect and it was quite an efficient way to get the word out there. But having these distributors come to us, you sort of take anyone that will come your way too. So we sort of have mixed success in that area. So globally, it's always been a bit of a struggle for us to really get the traction like we have in New Zealand where being in the local market, you give it that natural care and attention. And um, yeah, so, so New Zealand's always sort of been half our volume really, which just goes to show the potential globally of what we've got, but at the same time, a bit of a frustration of the fact that the potential's not being met globally. Yeah, what, what are the countries that you're doing well in, or, or kind of, I, I guess maybe to keep on the chronological tip, like when did you know that that was working, the, the international approach? Like were there any retailers or key bits of kind of um, press or, or, or any of those milestones we were like, wow, this is, this is really going to do it? There's been lots of things, right? We've, um, like in America, we, um, we've been on a National Geographic show. So they, they put us up against this wind fan and had this battle. And we did the same thing in Japan. So lots of little cool pieces like that. But in terms of actually penetrating that market to any sort of a level, it, it sort of it doesn't quite work. It's quite different. Like you've actually got to, what we've basically learned for our global strategy going forward is that we've got to focus and not think about countries. It's really areas within countries mm-hmm. and pinpointing sort of like little Aucklands all over the world. And the biggest thing for us is that word of mouth because everyone loves to talk about the umbrella for some reason, right? So it's really just nurturing that because that's the most natural way to get the word out there. So we've got this thing called a village strategy that we're just trying to hone now and um, how we actually speak to our consumers, how we actually find the right ones in these areas of the world and then go in there with digital means, with seeding, with local retailers and actually talk to little communities and get them talking about us and it'll just grow like that, like a spore of mould and a lemon almost. You know? <laughs> yeah. And is that kind of, because um, it's the kind of thing that you want to touch and see, uh, is that thing where retail is still so important or is direct consumer online a big part of your business or are there, you know, are there big orders in department stores that, that, that make a big deal for you? It's, it's all important, right? So you've got to get that mix right, mm. that balance. One thing that has worked really well for us is um, because umbrellas are that promotional item, um, it's actually quite a powerful way to actually get those promotional deals because you can sell a whole lot at once out to, say, a corporate, and then it gets in the hands of all those corporates. They take them home, and then their family experiences, and they get their hands on them. So that's a really good stepping stone to start the brand, but at the same time to be known as the, the promotional umbrella isn't a good thing for our brand long term. So that's that balancing act we've played the whole way through. But it's just a case of doing everything really well so that um, if you're going to be a promotional umbrella, just do it at that, le- that really high level. So that, that, that's really, really valuable. Because I imagine people uh, go to a business meeting and put their umbrella down and then everyone talks about it. And, yeah, uh, well, that's the thing. Yeah, you've got good little advocates all around the world. And it's that genuine word of mouth again, so that organic approach, just keeping it real. Tell me about the collaborations, because lots of people, especially locally, will have in their head uh, the really cool Karen Walker collaborations you've done over the years, uh, the Flocks, uh, Dick Frizzell, yeah. uh, Oxfam kind of tie-ups with, with a couple of those as well. Um, yeah, what, what, what kind of role does that play in your business? Oh, it's so important. It just, um, I guess working with someone like Karen, who's so much bigger than you, it just elevates you to a new audience, so you're speaking to a whole lot of different people. But the real cool thing about it is just the healthiness of that relationship. Like, I guess as a, as a promotional type umbrella, it's very easy for a brand just to want to put their, their logo on your umbrella and kind of see it as a collaboration, but the reality is it's not that healthy. So the first time we saw Karen, she, she spoke about us in an article, 
um, and talked about Blunt and I think how many Blunts she had in her house. We're like, wow, you know, she's already sort of in love with us. She gets it. So to actually enter and have a discussion with her was so easy. So it was just a natural thing. So to have that relationship and a collaboration, is, is, that's the healthiest way to go about it. And that's the way it's worked with Flocks and Misery and other work as well. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's what's worked really well for us. And is that part of the international approach as well? Are there kind of, you know, Karen Walker figures in other countries? Yeah, 100%. But here again, it's just it's more challenging to do that in these global markets because people like a Karen Walker in, say, the States or the UK is that much harder to approach and it's way more commercial. So New Zealand's really, really unique like that. You can actually just ring these people up and talk to them. And um, whereas you get into these bigger markets, you've got to be a lot more sophisticated with it and there's a lot more steps to get to that point. So it's just us understanding that process. And probably here again, just being more focused with it. So you're actually finding maybe the Karen Walker more of an area of Melbourne as opposed to, um, to the Karen Walker of Australia. So um, just being real and just the scale and just understanding that global scale when we're sitting here in New Zealand, like our perspective is just so distorted. And having been, yeah, that that's so true, our perspective being so oh, distorted, you know, like the fact that if anyone's talking and thinking about retail and selling products and isn't thinking first about Amazon, then they're never going to understand the UK or America. Exactly. Uh, and and it is, it's so important to get out there, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, 100%. What's changed in the 10 years that you've been growing it as a business? Because uh, it's been a pretty tumultuous 10 years, hey? Yeah, well, the world's changing, right? And it's, um, I guess it's only that recently that we're just thinking about this. And um, a big thing that for me is, is this whole respect for time. And it just feels like the world's getting a little bit out of control with, with development and the rate of change. And um, the time reference is sort of going out the window. Like we're just out of, biologically, we're sort of out of whack. And I just love the fact that our offering it does respect time. Like when I first um, went to do it, I just love the fact that if I could get this product that had been relevant for 100 years as it was and, and make it better, then that maybe that product could be relevant for a long time as well. And I think people really love the fact that they're owning something that, that's going to be with them for quite some time. So for us, it's that product lifespan that, that's so important to our brand. And um, and just, just being that, it's almost like a meditative thing for people just to, to relax and think, yeah, I've got this. It's not like an iPhone where you've got to stress about in two years, you've got to get the next one and spend all that money. You buy a blunt, you know that you can actually own it for a long time. And maybe putting your canopy on it in a couple of years if you want to, to, to make it fresh again. But at the same time, I think that's really healthy. And yeah. I think more companies need to think like that. Ah, it's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like that La Crusade version of sustainability where you get a really good casserole pot and you're like, how, how can it be that much? But then you have it for two generations yeah. or something. Yeah. But that, that also must have its own challenges as a business where you're like, well, we spent all this money finding a customer and then they bought an umbrella and we'll see them again in 15 years. Yeah, it doesn't actually work like that, though. It's quite weird because once people fall in love with you, they just want to keep buying it anyway as a gift or people have a house of like eight umbrellas. It's like crazy. They would never have done that before, but they have one in each car and one. So it definitely hasn't worked like that. And, you know, the world, the market's so massive for us. That's, it's not a problem for us, the market size. Mm. It's more about talking to the right people in the right way. Yeah. Were there any moments along the way where it looked like it wouldn't work? Because once a business is successful and it's sold a million and it's all around the world and it's redefined a kind of category, it looks like it was always meant to be the way. But I imagine it wasn't always a sure thing. Oh, no, massively. <laughs> no, no, massively stressful. Um, yeah, good part of the way. But um, I think until you fail, you'll never give up. Like There's never any thought of giving up. As long as you've got the vision of where you could be and you're always on that path, you have bumps, but you just got to keep going. Yeah, but there's obviously moments, massive moments. What's next? What are the what are the plans for the next twenty years? So, so our um, like I said, our our 
innovation in the product really is about lifespan for the product. So people owning that for a long time. So within the umbrella, we've got um, a lot of um, innovations coming that make you will make you want to own that same product for a long time. So building it in a new way so that it's it's totally modular. So that say if your handle gets chewed by your dog, you can just clip a new handle on and you're away again. Canopy, say in a couple of years' time, fashion changes, you want to change of re-express yourself, you can change that canopy out. So we're doing a lot of that. And um, we just love that recipe because it's really about aligning um, that consumer experience with sustainability mm. because if you're going to own it for a long time, it's more sustainable and you're going to get a better experience for it. So, um, so that, that's a really cool recipe to actually put into other products, which we are working on. It's secret squirrel. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. And, and what have you had to upskill along the way with going through all these different stages of the business? I think... Um, yeah, the hardest thing for me, I guess, is I was never really going to be the business leader. I was the product guy. So um, so to actually understand the health of the business, and I think it's more that governance side of things, is actually an area where I've really probably learned the most. And just the idea of looking down on a business as opposed to being in it. And that's actually a really difficult thing to do when you, you're doing both roles. So it's sort of wearing those different hats. So I think um, just having that that experience, like I'm very new to it at the same time, but just realise the importance of it and, um, and how key it is. Because when you're in a startup mode, you just you just think it's worthless right? And people don't quite understand that. But I think um, the more educated you can get on the importance of having that oversight and that direction and the governance is super important. What advice, you must get asked for advice all the time by uh, people who want to invent something cool or, or have a, another look at, at a product. Like, what advice do you have for people who um, who want to take something on like that? I think um, it sort of comes back to that same filter that I put through my own idea when I first started. And I think it's um, it's it's making sure your idea is a good one because I think people get attached to certain things that potentially probably aren't. So it's just running through that idea through as many filters as you can. So speaking to as many people as you can before you get too committed. Because I think people can get, once you're committed, you sort of get onto this um, this path that's very hard to get away from and you'll start spending money. Once you've spent the money, you've got that emotional energy. Um, you don't You can't give up on it, even though it's probably not the best idea. So that's the first one. Um, the second thing is making sure you can have a really good vision for what success looks like. So really, really clear inside your head. So um, that's not always easy to do when you don't know. So it's actually asking those questions to actually have that clarity and that vision. And the last thing I think is just making sure that you can commit and have focus because it just seems like anyone who gets anywhere has an ability to focus on the one thing and pour all the energy into it. And that's part of the vision piece as well. But having that single-minded vision and just clarity and heading towards one point, I think, they're pretty key things for people to get right if they're going to do anything. Yeah. And as a last thought, you know, uh, it looks, you, you know, like there's been a lot of success so far, but how do you define success? What will success be for you with Funtime Brothers? I think like the success for me, like it starts at the product. So to be able to develop a product that is sort of world leading for me, gives me a pretty big buzz because that's sort of my value add, I guess. But the other side of it is actually to have a business behind that that can complement the, um, I guess, the potential of it. And making sure, and, and to be truly global, like um, Blunt really isn't truly global at the moment. Like we've got that spread, but to get that penetration into some other markets for me, that would really define success for me. And to go back to London and see the success of the product like we see in Auckland, that that would that would really define success for me. Ah, yeah. that's so cool. Well, yeah. we'll look forward to seeing where yeah. it goes uh, in the next the next twenty years. Awesome. Uh, lovely to meet you. Thank you so much Thanks for being Simon. here today. It's Greg Rebner of Blunt on Brothers. Thanks very much. See you later. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing for us today. And thank you very much for having us along and listening. If there is someone that you'd like to hear their story on the podcast, hit us up on Twitter. It's at Simon underscore Cloud. Cheers. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. 
brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.